Well, friends, good morning. My name is Scott Cope. I serve as the church planting resident here at Hope Fellowship Church. It's great to be together. I'm going to pray for us once more, and then we're going to dive into God's Word. So would you pray with me? Father, we pray now that you would, through the preaching of your Word, bring the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Nobody likes to be kept in the dark. Of course, it's true in a literal sense, when the power goes out, or when little children are drifting off to sleep, there's often this physical urge to have the light and the comfort it brings. But it's also true when it comes to being kept in the dark about some important information. We don't want to be left out or looked over. We want to be kept in the loop, not kept in the dark. Whether good news or bad news, whether about an impending corporate takeover or some joyous family occasion, we all want to be in the know. Yet what if we're ignorant of some of the most important things in life? Or still, what if we're in the dark about being in the dark? If we're ignorant of life's most important matters and we don't even know it, what do we This morning, we continue in our series in the book of Matthew as we consider how Jesus comes to free us from our spiritual darkness and sin. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. You can find it on page 809 of the Bibles provided. We'll be in verses 12 to 25 today. So far in Matthew's gospel, we've seen Jesus' kingly identity asserted. In chapter 1, we saw his royal lineage laid out by Matthew. Then in chapter 2, we saw Jesus' miraculous birth and providential escape as King Herod sought to put him to death. In chapter 3, Jesus was affirmed as the Son of God at his baptism. And then just last week, we saw him resist Satan's temptations in the wilderness. And so we arrive at Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. We'll have three sections this morning. And the main idea of our passage is simply this. Jesus brings God's kingdom so that we would follow him. So read with me Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, 
in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Amen. Well, our first section is found in verses 12 to 17, entitled, Light for Those in Darkness. And our passage begins by noting how John was arrested by Herod Antipas. Uh, He had been preaching, and Herod did not like that. And so John, after being arrested, well, Jesus withdrew. He headed to the north into Galilee, and he doesn't stay in southern Galilee, which is where Nazareth was, but he heads even further north to Capernaum. And in this seemingly insignificant detail, Matthew again notes for us the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, again by Isaiah. You see the quotation there in verses 15 and 16. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And the first thing to note about Isaiah's prophecy is that it concerns Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. The land is pagan and unbelieving. They're they're not technically in the promised land, the land of the Jews, but they're outside of that. And so you see there in verse 16 that Isaiah describes the people as dwelling in darkness. I think it's fine to ask, what, what kind of darkness is Isaiah referring to? Well, it's not a technological darkness, right? So that Israel had, had better tools and instruments than the nations. It's not an economic or military darkness, wherein those nations were, were hampered, whereas Israel was this really strong land. It, it wasn't an intellectual darkness, in that Israel was especially enlightened compared to their neighbors. And it wasn't even a moral darkness, wherein Israel was an especially well-behaved and moral group of people compared to those around them. This was rather a spiritual darkness. It is a darkness that does not know the light of God's salvation. It is a darkness that blinds, that leaves those under it unable to, to know God to respond to him rightly. It is the darkness of sin. And we know it's the darkness of sin because of how the darkness is described. Look there at the second half of verse 16. Isaiah calls it the region and shadow of death. And death, my friends, is the result of sin. Back in Genesis 2, God created Adam and Eve, and he he made them to to know him and love him and enjoy him, to walk in the light of his presence. 
And then he commanded them, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the original Hebrew, he says, dying you shall die. After Adam and Eve rebelled against God's word, death now has cascaded over the human race like a waterfall. None of us are exempt from it because none of us are exempt from sin. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. Sin leads to death and we are all sinners, so we all die. Friends, this is the predicament of Galilee of the nations, and this is our predicament as well. It's not unique to to Zebulun and Naphtali, as if there was something especially dark about them then. No, this is the fundamental human problem. And yet, perhaps most tragic of all, we are content to dwell in this darkness of death. I wonder if you notice how in verse 16 it describes those those sitting or those dwelling in darkness. The picture is not of, of people eagerly trying to escape the darkness, but of those contentedly dwelling in it. Not trying to fight the darkness and pursue the light, but we dwell contentedly in the expectation of death. This is our natural human condition. And this is what makes Jesus' advent so amazing. Though the nations had not made the first step towards the light, though they were indifferent to their spiritual darkness, though we all were, yet he came. In his love and his grace, who took the initiative? God. God took the initiative to bring the light of life to the nations. Jesus drew near and pursued them. And how does, he, how does he do that? I think verse 17 tells us. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So friends, how, how does the light of Jesus Christ make it to the nations, whether in Galilee or in Cambridge? It is through the preaching of the kingdom of heaven. And as as faithful ministers proclaim the the rule and the reign of God and, and summon all people to joyfully submit to King Jesus, that the light of salvation and life goes out. So it wasn't simply Jesus' presence that brought the light. It was his preaching. And friends, do you know what that means for you and I? It means that if you are here, hearing this sermon, whether in the room or watching online, God has sent this light to you. The question is, do you see it as light? Because it's not just that the the light appeared among the nations. Verse 16 is very clear. It says that they have seen the light. And I think the implication, if they've seen the light and they've received the light, they've loved the light, 
you know, if, if, if you're in the dark and, and light comes, but you, you avert your gaze and you, you shield your eyes and you turn away from it, you, you have not seen the, the goodness and the beauty and the, the warmth of that light that brings life. You are still in the dark. And so notice that in Jesus' preaching, he brings the exact same message that John the Baptist had brought in chapter 3, verse 2. Namely, that God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, has arrived. The kingdom of heaven refers to the inbreaking of God's heavenly rule and reign in the cosmos, on earth. He's dethroning all opposing powers, undoing demonic opposition, and unseating all self-appointed kings. Because he's installing the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, because to announce that the kingdom has come is to announce that the, the king has come. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And, and so then the proper response to the king showing up, well, Jesus tells us there in verse 17, doesn't he? What does it look like to, to see the light that brings life and to respond appropriately? It is to repent. By this word, Jesus means that we are to turn away from our own kingdoms and our own agendas and to submit to his kingship, to pursue his kingdom and his agenda. As author Rosaria Butterfield puts it, to repent is to no longer pursue the life we once loved. It is to forsake self-rule in light of God's coming rule and reign, we're to turn away from sin and relinquish the, the throne of our lives and give it to Jesus. And so, friends, we shouldn't be confused. This is Jesus' first sermon. This is his most basic message. This is Christianity 101. To follow Jesus, you must repent. There can be no true and genuine following of Christ without also true and genuinely repenting, turning away from your sins. But we, we know this, right? You know, if, if somebody came to you and they said, you know, I follow Gandhi, but I don't do anything he said. I don't follow his example. I don't care what he preached. I don't care how he lived. I don't care about any of that. But, oh, yes, I most certainly follow Gandhi. I think we would say to that person, no, you, you've misunderstood something here. To, to follow someone, you have to, to abide by their teachings, by, live by their teachings. And so it is with Christ. If you don't regularly confess your sin, or seek accountability, or regularly ask for forgiveness, but instead indulge and coddle and even defend your sin, I fear this may be evidence that you're not actually following Christ. As Martin Luther said, and as our bulletins point out, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Or as another pastor comments, repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. And yet this repentance in no way earns us favor with God. Right? Because do you remember what verses 15 and 16 show us about our, our natural condition? 
we are sitting and dwelling in, in darkness. And then God graciously sends his light. It awakens us. He awakens us. And the response, therefore, that we have is one of repentance. The repentance does not come before the light. It is the response to God's light. And so this morning, I wonder if you have repented of your spiritual rebellion against King Jesus and submitted yourself to his rule. That's the whole reason he came to earth, to save rebels like you and me. As the eternal son of God, he took on human form. He lived a life of perfect obedience. Unlike Adam and unlike Israel, he never, ever submitted to Satan's temptations. He he resisted the devil and the devil's enticements. Saying, look, look at all these kingdoms. Because he was prioritizing God and God's kingdom. He perfectly obeyed his heavenly father. But then he went to the cross. And there he died as a substitute for the sins of his people, paying the penalty for all their transgressions, dying as their substitute. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, victorious over death, as the proof, as the vindication that he is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. How do you know that Jesus is king? Because he got back up from the dead. God's kingdom is now spiritual and invisible as God's rule and reign is established in the hearts of his people. But one day it will become physical and manifest when the Lord Jesus descends. When God's kingdom is brought from heaven to earth and Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. Until that day, mercy is extended. Forgiveness is offered through the preaching of the gospel Rebels are invited to come, lay down your arms. The king has offered pardon to whomever will come to him. He is willing to show mercy and grace. Friends, it's that great news that we've come to celebrate this morning. It's that great king that we want you to love and treasure. If you've not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and entrance into his eternal kingdom, Oh, why not do so today? And before we move on to our second point, we should not overlook how Jesus ministers to those nations that are far from God. Right? We see that again, that he goes to Galilee of the Gentiles, of the nations. Because this has been God's plan all along. That there would be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping God. Back in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, chapter 22, God told Abraham, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, indicating that God had a plan for the nations from the very first book of the Bible. In 1 Kings 8, King Solomon prayed that God would hear the prayers of foreigners in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. So apparently the the Israelite monarchy and the building of the temple, that has to do with the nations praying to God, God hearing their prayers, and them glorifying God, them knowing God. In Psalm 67, the psalmist prays, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth 
and your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. And then just one more text in Isaiah 49, for example. The Lord says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, talking about Jesus, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Friend, these few verses are just the tip of the iceberg of what God has always intended to do, to redeem the nations through the work of his Son, Jesus Christ. That's why we're planting a church in Bedford. That's why we send missionaries across the globe. That's why we support Bible translation. That's why we give ourselves this, because what God has been about, we want to be about. What God is passionate about, we want to be passionate about. What Jesus is doing, we want to get in on. That's why Jesus brought the light of the gospel to places like Galilee of the nations, that we might take it to places like Bedford, Massachusetts, and ultimately to all corners of the globe. So let's turn now to our second section, found in verses 18 to 22, entitled, A Disciple's Priorities. And what we find here is two vignettes of discipleship. What does it look like to follow Christ? What is the allegiance that he requires? Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. In this first episode, we see that Jesus takes priority over our vocations. Notice how Matthew emphasizes four times, these two verses, the work that Peter and his brother were doing. So verse 18 says they were casting a net, for they were fishermen. Verse 19 says that Jesus' call in their lives is to remain a, a kind of fisherman. And I think Matthew's summary of their response is especially instructive. You see it there at the end of 19. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, this message is obviously applicable to all Christians across the globe at all times. You know, Jesus is more important than your job. I think in a place like Cambridge... It's especially important. When we are especially tempted to place our, our work, our school, at such a high priority that it might even eclipse our devotion to Jesus. Friends, make no mistake, work is a good thing. It is a gift of God. God works, and he creates image bearers to work. It is a gift of God that we can glorify him and serve others in our work, from mowing grass to curing cancer, from studying markets to caring for your home. Work is a good thing, but it must not become an ultimate thing. It must never become our highest priority. You know, there are so many things we could say here. One application 
is that we should never pursue work that harms others or is sinful. Because Jesus is our authority, it would be better to take a low-paying job that glorifies him rather than a high-paying gig that dishonors him. And because Jesus is a higher priority than our work, it also means that we will, at times, say no to work's demands to say yes to Jesus' commands. For example, you might say no to a promotion because you know that the promotion is not bad, but it would require so much extra time that it would take you away from your family, which God has called you to lead and love and serve. You might say no to a position that requires you to work regularly on Sundays, if you're able, because you know that God calls Christians to gather together on Sunday mornings. You might say no to moving across the country for a new job because you want to stay in Boston and try to advance the gospel here. Brothers and sisters, in all these ways and many more, we can evidence that Jesus is our highest priority and not our work. And yet, I, I don't mean to give the impression that you know, work is always at odds with following Christ. Uh, no, no. Again, we can use our vocation to serve the Lord Jesus. From fixing machines that make good coffee, to studying buildings and how to construct them in a way that promotes health and safety, there are a myriad of ways we can love others and love God in our work. But it must never become our chief goal and aspiration and priority. I think it's important that we also note how Jesus is particularly calling Peter and Andrew to vocational ministry. Do you notice that? For these two brothers, Jesus was calling away from them away from their non-full-time ministry job to give themselves to a full-time ministry job. Stop being a fisherman and start being a fisher of men, as Jesus says in verse 19. That which Jesus is doing, calling others to follow him, he's going to invite them to do the same thing. You know, as I'm being a light, you be a light. As I'm being a fisher of men, I'm going to train you to be a fisher of men. And so, brothers and sisters, just as most Christians are, are not called to leave their workplace to enter into full-time ministry, some are. It's not because their fishing business is you know, necessarily in the tanks. It's not because they're bored with their current job and just looking for something to do. But it is because the, the call of the Lord Jesus Christ and the goal of becoming a fisher of men to summon people into glad submission to King Jesus is, is so constraining a desire that they leave whatever work they were doing and start doing the work of making disciples full-time. And so if that's you this morning, if you have a stirring and some desire to, to enter into full-time ministry, let me briefly encourage you to do three things. And if you're thinking, well, Scott, that's not me, well, you can write these three things down anyways, or you can remember them to counsel others. Uh, first, number one, test your internal call to ministry with an external call to ministry. That is, if you, if you have a desire to go into ministry full-time vocationally as your work, ask those around you what they think. Have they benefited spiritually 
from their relationship with you? Have they seen evidences of grace in your character? Is there a track record of of faithfulness and fruitfulness in the ministries and relationships that you invest in? Having an internal sense or call or desire to ministry is a necessary but not sufficient grounds to enter into the work full time. See if others would confirm this aspiration. Number two, if you desire to go into vocational ministry, talk to a pastor. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul commands the pastor, Timothy, what you've heard from me, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so apparently it is part of the job description of a pastor to help raise up and train other future pastors and leaders and teachers. So if you have questions about vocational ministry, come talk to Curtis or myself or anyone else on staff. Perhaps as you do that, you can do encouragement number three, which is read Bobby Jameson's new book, The Path to Being a Pastor, A Guide to the Aspiring. I recognize that that not every call to vocational ministry involves pastoring, so this is perhaps a particularly niche piece of advice, but it would be a good book to read with a pastor, to read with someone like Curtis. You can tell him I told you to email him. Friends, in all these ways, we should make sure that we know that Christ is supreme over our work. Even being a pastor, following Christ individually, takes precedence over any work that we may have. Let's turn now to our second vignette in verses 21 and 22. And going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Well, here we see that the Lord Jesus takes precedence and priority even over our families. Did you notice that? James is introduced as the son of Zebedee. We didn't hear anything about Peter and Andrew's parents. James and John are in the boat with their father. Jesus calls them. And then again, I think Matthew's summary response or or record of their response is indicative. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Friends, families are a wonderful gift from God. In fact, they are often one of God's sweetest gifts to us. And yet, for all their good, they again must not become a higher priority than following Christ. You can imagine how in a patriarchal society like ancient Israel, it would have been especially shocking to see these two brothers leave their father like this. I mean, didn't didn't they love him? Hadn't God commanded them, honor your father and mother? What was so important that he would leave him like this? Well, as Jesus says just a few chapters later, in chapter 10, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Friends, only the Son of God can talk like this. Only the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior and Deliverer, only he can say these things and it not be crazy. Who else has the right to say, I am a higher priority than even your parents and your kids? Only the king who made it all, who rules it all, who died for the sins of his people. This is crazy talk, unless Jesus is who he says he is. One application of this, friends, is that we should not let family opposition prevent our following of Christ. Depending on your religious background and upbringing, your family may not be enthusiastic about your intention to follow Christ. Perhaps it's in your desire to be baptized, or or perhaps just throughout your Christian life, you find opposition from those you love most. And while we should respond with love and gentleness and humility, we shouldn't let fear of our family's reaction dictate our obedience or disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians, you, you too may face opposition from your family, from your Christian family, as you desire and intend to live on mission, perhaps with parents or siblings. They may be shocked and hurt that you would move halfway across the country to join a church plant. They may be confused why, why, why you would move their grandkids halfway across the globe to join an international church in Sao Paulo or Dubai. You know, these can be difficult conversations. We want to love and serve our families. We cherish them. And yet, as with our jobs, we must recognize that the call of Christ is always supreme. He will not play second fiddle to our careers or our families. And so as a final point of application here, Parents, I, I wonder, do you pray for your children to become missionaries? Surely one of the strongest desires of a parent is to protect and provide for our children. This is obviously a good desire. Yet we should be careful lest that desire for our children's safety and security come at the cost of their wholehearted obedience to Christ. We want them to love Jesus more than they love us. This is difficult. And yet we want them, whatever the call of Christ may be, we want them to follow him. We want to model that ourselves and pray that God in his grace would give them that kind of devotion. And so now let's turn to our third and final and briefest point in verses 23 to 25, entitled, The Good News of the Kingdom. Verse 23 reads, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now this verse actually serves as a bit of a a roadmap for the chapters to come. So it lists three activities of Jesus, teaching, preaching, and healing. And in 
Chapters 5, 6, and 7, we'll see the, the preaching and teaching ministry of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we see the, the healing ministry of Jesus. So again, verse 23 here serves as a bit of a, a summary and roadmap of what's to come. But then not surprisingly, verse 24 records how Jesus' fame spread and the variously sick and afflicted people were brought to him. You know, in most hospitals, they kind of divvy up different departments. You've got the geriatrics and the pediatrics and the ENT specialists and, you know, because everyone has their own specialty and they're really good at helping with that one. Well, here we see Jesus healing all kinds of people, right? You see those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, you name it, he healed it. And so far from Jesus' healing ministry being disconnected from his preaching and teaching, it was of a peace. He was proclaiming the, the good news, the gospel of God's coming rule and reign. And just as that kingdom meant spiritual healing now as people repented of their sins and were reconciled to God, so to the, the fullness of God's kingdom, well, it means the end of sickness and death and disease. This is what we as Christians look forward to and long for when the Lord Jesus returns and God's kingdom comes in its fullness. Then he will do away with, with all sickness. No more COVID-19. Death and disease will be no more. And so until that day, we wait with hope. We wait expectantly because in these miracles of healing, Jesus was giving a foretaste of what is to come. And so, brothers and sisters, those afflicted with various illnesses and sicknesses, be of good comfort. Know that there is a day coming when the Lord Jesus returns, when your illness will be no more, when you'll see your Savior face to face, when he will heal you to never again be sick or suffer. And so our passage ends in verse 25. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Because of Jesus' preaching and teaching and healing ministry, people were coming from many nations. Again, a foretaste of the kind of global impact that Jesus will have, of the coming kingdom's diversity and unity in him. Will the crowd stick around? Once they learn that following Jesus means more than just impressive miracles and healings, we'll have to keep reading to find out. Peter and Andrew and James and John knew what it meant to immediately follow Christ and no matter the cost, surrender all to him. They saw the great light and responded to it rightly. I wonder, have you? Let's pray.